You're listening to the Sex with Dr. Jess podcast. Sex and relationship advice you can use tonight. Welcome to the Sex with Dr. Jess podcast. I'm your friendly neighborhood sexologist, Jessica O'Reilly, here with my partner in life and other things, Brandon Ware. I like the intro. I have a big grin on my face as I hear what you're saying about me. Brandon's just happy to have a (laughs) microphone in front of him that isn't on mute. He's a karaoke bandit, actually. (laughs) (laughs) So today we're going to be talking about how we misread our partners and how sometimes the way we think, not so realistically, can damage our relationships and more importantly, what we can do about this. And before we get started, I want to say a big thank you to Desire Resorts for their support of this episode and other episodes. Desire Resorts has two locations down on the Mayan Riviera. We love it there because you don't have to wear clothes. It's fantastic. Brandon likes to hang out with his wang out. Yeah, let's once again go in that direction. Chill out with his dill out. Yeah, rock out with me. You can say it. No, I'm Oh, okay. I, I'll tell you a story about that word that rhymes with rock. Rock out with your cock out. Mm-hmm. Cock has been ruined for me. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> I can't actually say the word cock. I mean, I can say it at work and I can say it here, but I can't say it in intimate situations. It's okay because I kind of don't really like it. It's a, it's not... Really? Yeah, no, it's not my jam. You like me to call it your wiener? Yes, approved. Oh, You're getting a little off topic right your now. Your wiener yes. looks so good today. Oh my god. Okay, thank you to At Desire Resorts, where it's clothing optional, couples only, and highly sensual. And we'll leave it at that. And our guest today is going to help Brandon and help me and help some of you deal with some cognitive distortions that are damaging your relationships. And so I thought before we invite Dr. Liz Powell on, I'd ask Brandon, do you think you misread me? And what are, what are like, what's the main thought that you have that you know is unrealistic or irrational that causes problems in this relationship? I have a lot of unrealistic thoughts, right? I didn't know you had any thoughts. Rarely do I have, (laughs) but when I do, they're, they're quite uh, engaging. Um, I guess one of the my concerns, or one of my one of my hot thoughts, if you want to call it that, was that when we first got together, that you were going to leave me, that you were going something was going to happen that was that would you know kind of take you away from me. Is it because I always left my suitcase at the door? Yeah, it's because you always left your phone somewhere. <laughs> just didn't assume that you were trying to take off. But that was certainly a hot thought, and I think that thought continued for years. After we first got together, I had a lot of insecurities um, that Dr. Liz is going to help me with today (laughs) (laughs) Uh, that really made me feel uncomfortable in in the relationship and probably made me act in ways that were not the healthiest or maybe not the most productive when it came to our relationship. Okay. Okay. And so you talk about it in the past, but there must be something lingering still. Oh yeah. I mean, come on. I'd be lying to everybody if I said that I didn't still have those fleeting thoughts from time to time and they've probably morphed into different thoughts. But I mean, that's one that was most prevalent when we first got together and that probably stuck around for the first like 10 years. Hmm. And it's been 17 for those of you who don't know us that well. So I was thinking about mine this morning on my way over here and 
I was thinking that my kind of hot thought or my misreading of your behavior has to do with any time I perceive change. So like Brandon is very doting and very attentive and very thoughtful. And you do a lot for me. I know you spend a lot of energy trying to take care of me. And whenever you don't do something that you normally do, sometimes I totally irrationally <laughs> freak out and I'm like, oh, well, something must be different. He didn't get my chair or he didn't bring me that coffee or he didn't buy me a Danish or he didn't get me that chocolate chip walnut cookie from, what's it called? Portland Variety. Portland Variety. All of mine revolve around food. Pretty much. <laughs> no, but it really is when you change your behavior a little bit. I think I have sometimes unrealistic expectations and it's not that I want the cookie or that I want the, well, I do want the cookie, but or the Danish or that I want you to get my chair or that I want you to, I don't know, he always cleans up the shower when I'm done in it. It's not that I want those things. It's what they stand for. And I get really, I think, irrational around this notion that if you didn't do it, maybe you don't care as much anymore because you are, you express your care in acts of service. So, so we could continue this conversation, but I think it would be much better facilitated by our guest. Uh, Dr. Liz Powell is a coach a published author, a licensed psychologist, um, Dr. Liz works with couples and singles to develop self-confidence and authenticity in relationships, whether those relationships are conventional or non-traditional. I follow Dr. Liz because of sex positive psych and uh, Dr. Liz is doing some awesome work. So I'm very fortunate. Brynn and I both personally are very fortunate. Yeah, please, Dr. Liz, chime in, fix me. Yes. How are you doing today? I'm great. How are you? Good. Thank you so much for being here. Yeah, I'm so happy to be on here. And this is one of my favorite things to talk about when it comes to relationship issues. Well, we've got ours. So uh, are we going to be okay? <laughs> okay. So the first thing I want to say is that, you know, most of us, when we are learning how to have relationships, we have a lot of fears about whether we ourselves are worthy of love or deserving of love or whether we are worthy and deserving of the partner that we have. And I think that a lot of these thoughts that we get about whether someone is going to stay with us or treat us right, or whether they're uh, not caring about us anymore, come from those fears that we have about ourselves. Not a ton of folks are super confident about themselves all the time, particularly when it comes to romantic relationships. Most of us have had a horrific breakup or two or 20 that <laughs> may have taught us that we may be someone who can't be loved even if that's not real. And so when something happens and those fears come up, what our brain wants to do is fill in a story to explain why this new thing is happening. In an ideal world, we would all be able to keep a spirit of compassion and kindness when we come up with that story. But the parts of our brain that drive our fear and our anxiety and our worry are far, far, far more powerful than the parts of our brain that do logical thought. So usually the first thoughts that we have about what's going on come from that space of fear and insecurity. Interesting. So, and it's funny because we often tell people to go with their first instinct when it comes to other people, but when it comes to ourselves, maybe the first thought isn't the most rational. Yeah. We, so if we look at like the, the structure of the brain, the limbic system, particularly the amygdala is where things like fear and anxiety live. And the limbic system is one of the oldest parts of our brain. So if we think about how our brain functions and what it does, the purpose of the limbic system is to help us get away from danger, to help us avoid things that could harm or kill us. 
So once that system is activated, it's, own, it's going to override the frontal lobes of our brain, which is where we do logic and more conscious thought because the limbic system is saying we are in genuine danger. We have to get away from this. Right. So it's survival first. Yeah. Survival first. Logic second. <laughs> Absolutely. It would be great if we could find a way to logic first, but even the, the best of us, even those of us who have done the most work on ourselves, who have taken the most time either on our own or in therapy or with friends to develop that skill are still going to have an irrational thought first and that's okay. Right. And so if you can recognize that irrational thought, you, I presume you can do something about that irrational thought. Like when I, when I, when Brandon doesn't, I don't know, put my towel next to the shower. I know that sounds so ridiculous. I mean, I'm here holding his hand. I, I know that that doesn't mean he doesn't love me or doesn't, or loves me less than he did yesterday. So I just have to override that irrational thought. Is that an accurate? I mean, that's, that's mostly accurate. The thing that I would say is that a lot of us want to jump immediately from irrational thought to rational thought. And I think part of how our brain works is that as soon as we tell ourselves not to think a thing, that's the only thing we can think about. Right. I think it's more helpful a lot of times to acknowledge the thought is there Okay. And to like give it its moment to just sit with it and be like, oh, how interesting. The story my brain filled in here is that maybe he doesn't love me anymore. Maybe he's going to leave me. What an interesting thought to have. And then to ask yourself, I'm wondering, what is the kindest explanation I could come up with here? If I was coming from a space of kindness and compassion about my partner and ascribing the very best motives to them, what might be the story I would tell? Right. I, I like that. I always like the story I'm telling myself is. <laughs> mm -hmm. And it sounds like a weird phrase when you're first starting it. So for those of you who haven't done a lot of therapy or used certain models that involve that, it's going to feel kind of clunky at first and strange. The thing I love about it is that it acknowledges that most of us are not psychic and cannot actually read our partner's mind. So any guess that we have about why they're doing something is just that. It's a guess. It's a thing that we are coming up with to explain the behavior that we're seeing. That may mean that we're right. It may also mean that it's just kind of what our brain came up with. Because right. our brains, as much as we want them to be these beautiful functional machines, are often full of garbage. <laughs> That's just part of it. Yeah. Well, and so I was thinking about Brendan's story, and you know, it really has been 17 years and 17 years of, of investment and work and uh, I think, you know, we're sitting here kind of holding hands and in a really good place. Uh, but I think about where you were 17 years ago and what's your story as to how you got here today? Because I, I mean, I, so, so to give you some context, I'm gone every week. I travel every week. I'm with interesting people, powerful people, attractive people. And I don't think that you're so much scared anymore. Maybe if I describe I, it I that mean, way. <laughs> if I, if I also had to describe the, the progression, my progression, I, I really did, I felt like I came into this relationship not being, I don't want to say worthy, but I, I didn't have, you know, the most, uh, being a little bit open and honest here, I didn't have the most glamorous job when we first got together. I, I didn't feel like I was really um, kind of on the same level. I know that's not a healthy thing or a healthy way to feel when you're first starting out because you know, just didn't make me feel that way. That was something that I, you know, imposed upon myself. But I, I think I really went about the first handful of years trying to prove to others that I was deserving of a partner like you. 
And it was really hard for me because when I reflect back on it now, it's almost, it's silly to think that I was trying to justify my position within this relationship to people who frankly didn't matter that much. Um, the person who did care the most was the one who saw the value in me. So, I, you know, it's hard to, to have those, you talk about the rational thoughts when people are, uh, you know, pushing your buttons either directly or indirectly, you know, what society might tell you or what, you, you know, your friends might say or what you might hear from other people. So I don't know if I'm really rambling on and making a lot of sense, but I think that those feelings that I had initially were self-imposed as opposed to um, those that my partner were, were kind of making me feel. Right. But, and like your journey though, cause you don't seem to think that way as much anymore. Like how did you get there? Wow. I mean, that's, a, that's like a, like an hour long session in itself. Maybe right? Dr. Liz can explain it. <laughs> For me, what ended up happening is I, you know, I, over time I grew, I, I gained confidence in the relationship. I understood that how much you cared about me for who I was and for what I was, how I may have defined myself within society's, um, definition didn't really matter that much uh again i'm just pulling i i'm pulling from what your typical guy might be told to do like you need to do this you need to do that and you know you need to achieve this level of success to be worthy of your partner or whatever it is and you know at the end of the day that frankly didn't matter like it, it didn't matter what mattered right. to you was who i was as a person so it was like i had to get over those initial thoughts to feel good within the context of the relationship. So, so Dr. Liz, I, I don't know if I'm, I don't want to speak for you, babe, but if, if you're saying you kind of, you worked on yourself and worked on your own confidence, is that something that helps to address some of these irrational thoughts within a relationship? Absolutely. I think there are multiple things that are helpful. One is definitely figuring out what are the things that are driving these thoughts for you? Are there patterns? So for Brandon, it sounds like there was a lot of this societally imposed thinking of what it is to be a good man. Like, mm -hmm. what is a good man supposed to be? How do you earn love and affection through certain things? For men, that's often about position, power, money. For women, it's about beauty, thinness, compliance, uh, emotional labor. And any time that we feel like we are either not doing that up to a standard that society would want us to, or that our partner has other options available who are better at those aspects, it's likely to bring up our insecurities about it. Right. So, you yeah, said something really interesting, uh, like the emotional labor piece for women. Mm. And I guess that's a whole other topic. Um, but I think most, uh, most women feel pressure to perform emotional labor, not only within our intimate relationships, but in life. And then I think maybe for us, like Dr. Liz, for people like you and me who are supposed to be in helping fields, we're expected to do the same. Yeah. I, one of the biggest issues I have myself in romantic dating is that I do so much emotional labor for my work that mm -hmm. I don't want to have to be the primary emotional labor person all the time for my partners. It's so much to hold. And I think you know, back in my, my marriage that did not work out, one of the reasons I stayed in my marriage as long as I did was because I had this idea from society that my job as the woman in the marriage is to make the relationship work. That if it, the relationship fails, it is somehow my failing as a woman because I should be able to make any relationship work if I love hard enough and try hard enough. Right. There is this, and then on the flip side, like men 
most men in, in the United States, in Canada, in Western societies, are not given an opportunity to get emotional labor from anyone who is not their partner who is a woman. Yes, yes. And I was just talking about this today. Sorry, go on. Oh, yeah. And it's, it's so sad because I have, uh, I end up with a large number of men in my private therapy practice. I think partly because I'm a military veteran, uh, partly because I speak in a way that I think dudes relate to. Um, but so many men that I see come in and they're like, I don't have any friends who I can talk to about real stuff. Like I can't talk about the sadness that I'm feeling or the fear I'm feeling about whether uh, everything that I'm doing is worthless. They have these deep needs for support and connection. They want to be seen and they want to belong in a deep and meaningful way. But the way that we tell men to be friends with other men is so surface and shallow and allows no space for that intimacy. And that's a really big problem because then straight men come back to their woman partners and expect that woman to be all of their intimacy needs. And that's not realistic. No one can do that. Right. This you, uh, pretty much hit the nail on the head. There. <laughs> like, I mean, not to, not to jump in, but I can attest to personally not, I, I mean, I have some great friends, but it's certainly not the type of relationship where I'll open up to them. Like I'm not going to call, you know, one of my best friends and be like, I'm feeling really sad today and I'm, you know, I could really use a boost of support and, you know, get that. Whereas I do feel, again, painting with broad strokes that women do have the type of relationships with their friends where they can get, they, they, they have that degree of openness where and vulnerability yeah, and vulnerability where I don't like most of the friends that I have, I'm, I am talking about business. I am talking about sports. I am talking about things that I am interested in, but I'll tell you, I do need to have an outlet every once in a while or more often than I probably admit to say, you know, listen, I'm, I'm just, I'm feeling really crappy today. I'm not feeling good. And this is why, and you're right. You Jess becomes my only outlet for that most of the time. Right. So and now. then the onus of emotional labor falls oftentimes on the woman. And you said, Brandon, every once in a while, it's not every once in a while. It's every day that you need emotional mm -hmm. support. Yeah. And I, I can say maybe 12 years ago or so, something like that. I said to you, I was like, listen, I can't do all of this. Mm -hmm. Go get a therapist. <laughs> and, I, and I did. And, and I'll tell you, my therapist, it was, it was a game changer. It was, uh, it was great. Uh, you know, he was fantastic. And I miss him <laughs> he, was, he had, has retired and I was upset when he did, but he was a, a fantastic resource for me. And sometimes I felt bad for kind of dumping on him, but he was very, um, very good at listening and understanding and, and pushing back and challenging me to, to open up and to be more vulnerable. Yeah. And it's interesting that you would say you feel bad dumping on him. That's how yeah. Brandon's quite aware. Of, <laughs> no, but you're, you're very aware of other people's feelings. And so, um, the Canadian in me was apologetic for, <laughs> for jumping on my therapist. Yeah, yeah I, as an American, I, I understand that Canadians are very apologetic about many things. Yeah, we don't mean it. Yeah. <laughs> it's just a formality. Yeah, sorry, but. <laughs> yeah, and I think I wish so much that more men would take the risk of telling their friends that they want something more than what they have. Because again, every man I talk to wants this with their friends, but none of them have yet taken a step of going up to one of their friends and saying like, hey, sometimes I have stuff I want to talk about that's not the stuff we usually talk about. And it's about, you know, like feelings or whatever. But do you think maybe sometimes we could talk about that? So do you and I, go ahead. How to start those conversations? Like if I were to 
you know, a friend of mine who, you know, we've been friends for 20 years and our conversations have been meaningful, but never, you know, in that direction. How, how do you suggest having those, starting those conversations? I think a lot of that depends on the person you're talking to and what your relationship is like with them right now. Um, different people respond differently to ways that you approach these kinds of conversations. So for instance, there are some people in my life who I could, you know, sit down with, I could say to them more directly, hey, I've noticed most of what we talk about is this more shallow stuff or work stuff, and that's really important. I also wish that I could talk with you about my feelings. And I wish that you would talk with me about your feelings. And I know that that's weird and like not a thing that dudes do usually. I just kind of want us to like be rebels and try it out. Mm -hmm. With other folks, you have to kind of take a more roundabout approach of, you know, starting a more regular conversation and then maybe dropping in something a little bit more intimate than you might usually talk about and see how they react. And if they kind of push back against your norms and say like, dude, no, 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 that's, ooh, that's, yeah, whatever thing they would say to kind of discourage you away from that behavior, then taking that opportunity to say like, well, but like, why? Why shouldn't I talk about this stuff? Aren't you my friend? Haven't we known each other forever? What, are you not man enough to take this? Right. Well, and I, I do think when you, when you open up and you're vulnerable, regardless of gender, most people are responsive because vulnerability is really disarming. And so I think- it's true. That, and, and the other thing I was thinking was because we have uh, more interesting content on like Netflix and Hulu and whatnot, I think sometimes even if you're watching a show or something with a friend, it's an opportunity to say like, hey, what do you think of that? Yeah. There's, there's so many ways to start conversations. And I love that you brought up the, the power of starting with vulnerability. Um, one of the biggest things that I encourage for folks when they're starting a difficult conversation with someone, uh, especially if you're angry with that person or you feel like that person has harmed or wronged you, is to start with your own vulnerability because it's so much less likely that they will be defensive or that they'll push back against you if you're opening from a vulnerable space. So that makes so much sense. Because like the way that we, so much of the time when we respond defensively or pushing against someone else, it's because we feel like they're trying to be like one up on us, that they're trying to push against us, that they're trying to ask us to do a thing that they are not doing, which is to be vulnerable and admit fault. So when you open with it and start with it yourself, it gives the other person a space to feel like they can join you there rather than having to be there alone. Right. And that, that makes sense in terms of even when you're fighting, right? If you're having an argument, if you take some responsibility, then the person is the person who will never take responsibility. As soon as they hear someone else take responsibility, they're like, oh yeah, man. Okay. I guess I could have done this differently. I, I just want to interject with an apology for the construction noise. <laughs> I'm in this brand new studio where we've, we've put together for this podcast and there is major construction. So hopefully people aren't picking up on it too badly. It's not Brandon throwing furniture, I promise. <laughs> Maybe we'll invite some of the construction crew in to share how they're feeling. I express my vulnerability. Brand I am a door slamming and in the background. Brandon's a little mad at the construction crew right now. Yeah, he's calmed down since. So, so I mean, I, had, I, I have some hot thoughts that some listeners have sent in. But before we get to them, um, just because we've gone in a different direction, and I think you've been really helpful just talking about friendship. First of all, maybe we should just eradicate gender. And if we could eradicate gender roles, we'd be okay. <laughs> I like the idea of, of showing your vulnerability first. I think what Dr. Liz was saying, if I were to open up a conversation with one of my friends by starting there, 
I can immediately gauge whether or not he or she is going to be receptive to what I'm saying. And I, I like it from there. I can kind of determine whether or not this is a conversation that we can continue having or that, you, you know, that we're going to have that meaningful conversation that I want to have. And if it, if they push back, then I know that, okay, I'm not going to have that conversation right now with you. Maybe I try again, or maybe I try with one of my other friends. Yeah. And it's, it's funny. Cause I think if you, not funny, but if you start a conversation with, you know what, I'm really struggling with something. Most people are going to be responsive. I'm going to call Mike out right now. Mike, man, we're gonna have some we're gonna have some deep <laughs> conversations soon. I, I wonder if Mike <laughs> even listens to this. I wonder. Well, he's uh, he's getting called out. <laughs> I'm gonna get called out with you, man. Uh, Dr. Liz, you brought up something about you know how you bring this up with friends, and I'm gonna tell you what situation I have. This is more of a counseling session than it is. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm quite good at having the vulnerable conversations where I'm on the receiving end. And that comes down to emotional labor and working in this field and coming from probably my, like my educational background. I, um, you know, friends have problems. They will talk to me sometimes and I'm quite comfortable with those conversations. Um, what I'm not comfortable with is bringing up my problems, right? I, and I don't know if it's because I always want to seem strong or because honestly, I feel like my problems really aren't that big because... I'm pretty blessed in life right now, but why, what do you, why do you think this is? What can I do about this? <laughs> uh, to be honest, I have the same problem and that's something <laughs> I'm working on really hard right now. I think those of us who are helper types are often people who throughout the courses of our life have been like the available person for others mm -hmm. in a way that is very helpful for others, but I think ends up closing us off. When you believe that you have to be available to help everyone else all the time, what can happen is you can feel like there's no space for you to need help. And it can also be a way that you hide from the ways that you do need help. Yes. So I'll talk about one of my own patterns. I hate in non-monogamy that I will sometimes have needs or wants that are not like perfect poly person wants and needs. Ah. So for instance, I have a trip coming up with one of my partners uh, and after we get back, we were supposed to go up into the Sierra Mountains to watch the Perseid meteor shower with a bunch of people that he knows. And uh, one of the people who was going is a former lover of his. And when he told her that he was going to be bringing me on the trip, she was upset. And we had a situation of either he goes without me, we go together and she is unable to go, uh, or neither of us go. And the perfect poly person response would have been, honey, do whatever feels best for you. And I will be totally fine. I'll take care of myself. Don't you worry. Like, take care of what you need to do. But for me, I really wanted him to have my going be a necessary condition. I wanted him to not go if he wasn't going to take me. And asking for that felt so wrong because how dare I try to control my partner's behavior or, or change my partner's behavior just for my comfort? There are these ways that we try to cut our needs down to size for, for a number of reasons. For me, it's that I, it feels so much more painful to ask for something that I need and to not get it than to just like convince myself that I'm okay without it. I am so used to being completely self-sufficient that allowing myself to rely on someone feels dangerous. And I think when you're used to being the helper, 
it feels much more vulnerable in the being helped position because you're not, you're not the one with the answers. You're not the one giving the support. You're the one admitting that you too are human and struggle and have problems. Right. And you relinquish control to some degree. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And I think, you know, I'm a perfectionist. A lot of folks I know who have this problem are also perfectionists. And we have this story that part of being perfect is never needing help from anyone else. Right. Able to be completely self-sufficient in terms of taking care of yourself. And that's just not real for any of us. No. And, and perfectionism is yeah, unbelievably damaging to your life, to your self-esteem, to, to your relationship. It, it's funny, you know, in, in job interviews, when you ask somebody like what their weakness might be, they'll say, oh, I'm a perfectionist as though their negative is a positive. But anyone who's ever struggled with perfectionism knows that the best thing you can do is, is try and shift that, that behavior pattern, right? That inclination. When you stagnate when you're, when you're a perfectionist, you're, aren't you constantly looking to not proceed until it's absolutely perfect? In business. Absolutely. In, yeah. in business, certainly. Yeah. The whole analysis, paralysis but, by analysis. Yeah, you both oh, are both yeah. Brendan and I struggle with that. Trying to finish my book was a nightmare because it had to be done, right? There was no, it couldn't be perfect because that would never happen. So I had to just finish it. <laughs> so tell me about your book. So I just finished my book. It's Building Open Relationships. It's a practical how-to guide for swinging, polyamory, and beyond. It is filled with all of my worst mistakes in my relationships. There's this fascinating thing that I see where people talk about, some folks talk about non-monogamy needing some sort of special skill set that you don't need for monogamy. I think that's false. You know, I was recently at the conference for sex educators and therapists for the main certifying body for those folks. And I was in a panel about non-monogamy and someone in the audience asked, you know, what if you have these clients in your therapy practice and they want to be non-monogamous, but you think they don't have the self-regulation skills that they need (laughs) to do it. And I raised my hand and I said, maybe this is a stupid question, but what exactly are the self-regulation skills that you need for non-monogamy that you don't need in monogamy? Right. Like one is inherently easier than the other, but that's such a monogamous, um, mononormal approach, right? Like monogamy is easy. It's consensual non-monogamy that takes work. Well, guess what? (laughs) Any relationship. And I agree that there's a, every relationship takes work. And I agree that in non-monogamy, there are more degrees of complication because you have more intersecting types of relationship. However, the skills aren't different. I think that there is this idea that like people who do non-monogamy have to be better at the skills before they do it. When I think what happens instead is a trial by fire, where if you don't get better at these skills, you just process your relationship all the time and never get to have an actual relationship. So I think that there's this idea that somehow how you do relationships changes depending on how many people you date. And I don't think that's true. I think every kind of relationship that we have, a friendship, a work relationship, a romantic relationship, it all takes the same kinds of skills, just applied slightly different ways. Right. And it would seem to me that a lot of the problems you run into, whether you're monogamous or non-monogamous, whether you're polyamorous or swinging, whether you're somewhere in the middle, the challenges are the same. Like you're still mad that your partner doesn't help with the dishes and you're still frustrated (laughs) that, you know, you're organizing the kids and whatnot. So at least that's what I see. And I see it cross-culturally as well. People will say, oh, what's the difference between, you know, the clients you work with in India versus the clients you work with in Texas? And you happen to be in Texas today, right? 
I am in Texas today. Today I am in Dallas, uh, ahead of Poly Dallas Millennium Conference this weekend. Oh, cool. Yeah, but I mean, what you see is that the problems are the same all around the world. The way we approach it culturally can be slightly different, but human inclination is fairly consistent, especially as it pertains to like our need for emotional fulfillment. And we may not express it in the same way, but also our need for sex. Dr. Liz, can I ask about your book? Um, do you, you said that you share some personal stories in there. Is that correct? Like some I do. experiences where they, uh, I'm, I'm sure they were quite interesting and funny. Yes, they are. They're funny. They're also painful. Uh, I have a lot of vulnerability hangover from putting <laughs> this book out into the world uh, because I do talk about some ways that I have really, really messed up in big, important ways. Uh, and Part of why I wanted to share my own stories was to make it real for folks and to show that I am not this perfect poly person sitting up on a hill and doing things the right way and you should do things my way. We're all going to mess up and we're all going to mess up big and it's most helpful if we can figure out how to learn from those mistakes and be better coming out of them. Right, and I'm glad you brought that up because sometimes within poly communities and within swinging communities and any other consensual non-monogamy communities, there is this notion that we do relationships right. <laughs> right, it happens in the kink world too. It's, it's like, well, there's that. always consent with kink. Well, no, there are consent violations in all approaches to sex and relationships. So. I think it's um, a good reminder that whether you are monogamous or consensually non-monogamous, whether you're an expert or you've never studied this at all, you're going to make mistakes. Yes. There are none of us who are free from mistakes. And I think I see this podium problem where we put the people that we have as our heroes or who we admire on these podia that they cannot help but fall from. We're all going to mess up. Exactly. We've, we've all fallen from grace. I have to stop because we're out of time, but you're amazing. Where can people find you? My website is sexpositivepsych.com, and you can find more about the book at buildingopenrelationships.com. It's also available on Amazon. Awesome, and I'm going to be sharing some of your YouTube videos because you do really great work. Great, thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah, I think that was really good. Yeah. I learned so much. We got a little bit of a therapy session. <laughs> I'm so happy I was able to help. I appreciate it so much. Thank you again. All right. Thank Have you. Have a great one. Well, babe, Dr. Liz is pretty great. She was amazing. Are you kidding me? I got a free therapy session. <laughs> uh, we didn't actually get to some of the scenarios and hot thoughts that people sent in. So we're going to have to cover these later. But I think uh, there was a couple of really important, there were a couple of very important messages from Dr. Liz. Um, one around gender and how you frame your friendships. Yeah, I, I think that the, the vulnerability, the, the willingness to push your boundaries and start to have those conversations as awkward as they are with people who you don't normally have them with is important, you especially have, for guys. Yeah, yeah, you have one friend like that, and he's a newer friend, correct? I do, yeah. Don't, I, you don't have to say his name, but I, you guys speak a little differently, right? Yeah, you know what? We, we have deeper conversations. We, um, you know, I don't know how we exactly got there, but it just started with casual chat, coffee over a drink, and then kind of evolved into conversations that were a bit deeper. But we certainly didn't have that outright conversation where let's have a deeper chat. It was more, I opened up, as Dr. Liz said, I started that, whether purposefully or not, with a conversation where I was like, this is how I felt when this happened, or I forget exactly how. But from that, 
he reciprocated and told me something. And then it just kind of built and went from there. And now we are having deeper conversations. And we still go back to some of the superficial stuff, but they have gotten much more interesting. Yeah. And I guess I wonder if people are just sitting there boiling over, dying and aching to share, no, to share these vulnerable stories. And all it takes is for one person to open up and it opens Pandora's box, so to speak. And then the other person to listen. The right. other person to be willing to listen. That's right. it. Right. And without judgment. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, there's. it feels good to share and to be open with people. Yeah. And I, I mean, I will admit, so I'm really open with you. Um, we talk about a lot of things and we have this nice relationship, but I struggle with almost everyone else in my life. And so we talked about the, this is maybe a gender reversal, but if all of my vulnerable needs are met by you, that puts a lot of pressure on you. So I know that's something I have to work on. So hopefully other people can think about what it is they might be working on. And even if it's just a really small thing uh, this week. So I thought that was a really important piece to take away. And we didn't really get to talk about the specific scenarios around misreading our partners and some of our hot thoughts. But I really appreciate that Dr. Liz reminded us that it's okay to sit with these hot thoughts. Nothing's wrong with you if you have these hot thoughts. And if you try to suppress these hot thoughts, they will only be further reinforced. And I've talked about the white bear experiments in the past. You can go take a look at um, Google that if you want. I'm thinking about a white bear now. White bear, white bear, white bear. 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 What if I say blue ball? Don't think about a blue ball. No, I'm still stuck on the bear. (laughs) So we're going to wrap with that. Hopefully this leaves you something to think about and not just think on, but, you know, maybe change a small piece of your behavior over the course of this week because that's what we're trying to do is provide insight, get you thinking, but also uh, provoke behavioral change. So we'll leave it at that, babe. Thanks for being here. It's always nice when Brandon's here. We end up, because we're talking about an intimate topic, Yeah, I feel like I end up sharing a lot more than I probably should, but hey, let's do it. Um, Well, I was on the Great American Sex podcast with Sunny Megatron and Ken this week, and they asked me to share a poop story. So go have a listen to that, folks. You know I don't like talking about poop. You shared a poop story? I shared a poop story. Do you have poop stories? Babe, I don't have poops. I got to listen to that one. Stop, stop. Actually, I don't want you to because you might not know. Uh, So we're sitting here holding hands, babe. I really appreciate you being here. Um, A lot of people tell me that They see a different side of me when Brandon's by my side, and there are a number of reasons for that. It's because I'm vulnerable. I start with opening up. Yeah, it it is. It is. Well, it's partly that, but it's partly that I feel safer with you next to me because I I love you and I know you have my back, but also just because being a woman in the public eye kind of sucks sometimes, and just having someone by your side, even if they weren't as amazing and weird as you guys he's flexing oh brennan stop 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 okay i'm going now thank you very much to at desire resorts for your support of this podcast we love you we can't wait to see you in october check out our event calendar and you'll see when we'll be down there in october at desire riviera maya and desire pearl folks have a lovely week follow along at sex with dr jess i got insta stories coming at you because i am in chicago this weekend Brandon's not coming. All right. (laughs) Thanks, folks. Have a great week. You're listening to the Sex with Dr. Jess podcast. Improve your sex life. Improve your life.